promo come or that's the only one that is different that if, you know while people are practice revelation song so where's aurora today where's aurora Continuing our uh, series in the Paul's epistle to the Galatians this morning, in the third chapter, three verses, verses 27 through 29, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one. In Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, according heirs according to the promise. Our sermon title this morning, Growing Blueberries with Fire. Uh, what does it mean to be in a reconciled relationship with God? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. How does a fallen human being, born into a covenant with Satan, sin, and death. The goal of which covenant is to kill and kill God and become God. How does that person end up in a covenant with God? Loved by God. God actually rejoicing over that person with singing, as the prophet Zephaniah declared. Furthermore, how does such a person remain in that blessed covenant with God? There are some that are persuaded, yes, grace got me here, but truly now the battle is mine to keep. There were some in Galatia who were insisting, yes, God is gracious and he has called you into this blessed relationship, but you must receive circumcision to be identified as a member of the covenant community and therefore to relate rightly to God and other members of the community, for only those in such a circumcised state can relate to God and others in that covenant community. That's the big problem here in Galatia. Huge problem. No circumcision, no membership. And essentially, you're not part of the covenant. These people, the apostle refers to as Judaizers. Those who demand you become a Jew to relate to the Messiah, essentially. As Seth reminded us last week, earlier in the letter, Paul had to rebuke the rather fallible apostle Peter. For Peter had pulled away from his new Gentile friends as soon as the Judaizers showed up. Poor Peter, like many of us, was a slow learner. He denied Jesus three times, and here he is denying Jesus' Gentile followers. And you recall he dragged Barnabas down with him. 
You recall last week, if you were here, that Seth exegeted the verses wherein Paul anticipated the objection of the Judaizers. Having assured the Galatian believers that God justifies the repentant sinner by His grace through faith, the faith that that same grace arouses, and not by means of keeping the Mosaic law, and having reminded them that the supply of the Spirit and miracles performed among them was a result of hearing with faith and not by works of the Mosaic law, Paul knows that either some smart-mouthed Judaizer or even a well-intentioned Judaizer, or perhaps even an intuitive new believer is going to ask at some point, well, then, why the law? I mean, why was it given? There's a lot of years of law there. And there's a lot going on in the law. Why was it given then, Paul? So Paul explains the purpose of the law. And just to summarize that with two of the points that Seth made last week in his instruction, the law serves as a guardian, a guide Seth put it, a guide until they could do it themselves. In other words, until the Spirit of God gave them hearts to truly love, which is the whole law fulfilled in one word, they needed something that could be used to continue to mark them as God's people, separate them from those that are not God's people, and to reveal the impossibility of a relationship with God outside of God's initiating, sustaining power, grace, and love. The second point was that in the text last week that the scripture which contains the law imprisoned everything under sin. The scripture says that it's scripture contained everyone under sin. And again, nicely summarized by Seth to indicate the impossibility of escape from within. We need external help. God has, in his, in his marvelous ways, has sort of confined us. We are in an externally, we can't get out, we are trapped. And only God can do that by grace through the faith that the Spirit awakened in us by the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. And that portion last week wrapped up with we are sons of God through faith. Very helpful comment here by Philip Graham Riken. To say that we are all sons of God has nothing to do with being masculine. Sonship means that we will inherit everything. God has ever promised to give His children forgiveness of sin, heaven, eternal life, and all the rest of it. Because in ancient Hebrew thought, the sons were the heirs. So to be a son now, whether you're a man, woman, etc., is to be one who is going to inherit everything. And that's where we pick up this morning. This is where we begin at the 27th verse that says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Now, along with the 29th verse, verse 27 is in what I call an identity verse. This is an identity verse. Both verses answer the question I began with, who is in the new covenant community with God? How did they get there? And how do they remain there? For in Christ, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Our individual water baptism is not what Paul is referring to here. Though our individual water baptism does bear witness to what Paul is referring to. And so to know what's going on, we've got to get inside Paul's head a little bit. We have the advantage of that. You know, the original recipients of any particular original letter had the benefit of just what was in that letter. 
I have to imagine, though, that there were those that were trained and well thought in the churches in those days that would then be able to say, I've read the letter to the Corinthians, or I spoke to Timotheus, and he was telling me about the letter to Corinth, and Paul said something like that here. I have to imagine that happened. I can't imagine every single one of those was its own little sort of enclosed little enclave of doctrinal thought. So we get inside Paul's head a little bit. Let's get inside his his thought a little bit. And I want to take you in that case to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. And again, I'm not getting the forward on that. If you could just then forward it to the next slide, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 through 4. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. Now in the chronology of Paul's writings, Galatians comes either just before or just after 1 Corinthians. And very briefly, the cloud and sea reference are a reference to the exodus from Egypt. They followed the cloud. They passed through the sea on dry land. This is exile imagery. Now, the sea and the cloud have nothing to do with water baptism, of course. Water baptisms and ceremonial washings came well after the Exodus event. In the Levitical ordinances, God prescribed them. But the Israelite people were baptized into a person, Moses. And everything that they were going through and their formation as a people was bound up in Moses and how he represented them before God and before Pharaoh, for that matter. Luke chapter 9, verses 30 through 31, if you would, next. And behold, two men were talking with him. This is when Jesus is up on the Mount of Transfiguration. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. That word departure, translated in our English, is from the Greek word exodus. So Jesus had an exodus to accomplish at Jerusalem. His death, his own leading a people out in exile from the realm of sin and death. And when did that happen? Next text, please. Romans 6, 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? When did that happen? Well, it happened when Jesus died. Tom Holland commented, he says, As Moses in the exodus from Egypt took out the people of God... For they were united with him through baptism. So Christ takes those who have been baptized into union with him from the realm of sin and death. The baptism into Christ took place in his exodus, Luke 9, 31, in his coming out of the realm of sin and death. It was a baptism into the death that all believers experienced in that same historic moment. Okay? You with me? So... And this is consistent with the rest of Scripture, as we'll see. I'll mention a few other things that just sort of sign, seal, and deliver that for us. But it shouldn't come as any surprise. We were united with Christ in His death. His chosen people were united to Him by the Spirit in His death. 
that's throughout Romans, throughout Galatians, and other places. The Spirit baptized us into His death. We're limited to always thinking of like baptism going into water. But you recall that Jesus talked about a baptism of suffering, a baptism of other things. So there's this sort of immersing into. And the only way that we could be raised with Christ and seated with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, Ephesians, is if we were first buried with Him, which required us dying with Him. Paul said earlier in this letter, I am crucified with Christ. Am I saying that we died with Christ and were buried with Christ in baptism? A baptism that took place 2,000 years ago? Yes! <laughs> and I am merely echoing the scripture. Paul in Ephesians 1 says that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, predestined us to the adoption as sons. So we see a connection. The sonship comes through identity, comes through union, comes with baptism into Christ. That all long happened before you and I ever entered the waters of baptism. Nothing changes our identity by us going into the waters of baptism except that we are acting out what is already true. Like the Old Testament prophets, we're performing our own little sign act when we go into the waters of baptism and formally, uh, in the enlightened view of others, uh, identify ourselves as the body of Christ. You know, the Old Testament prophets, Ezekiel was always acting things out. You know, he had, to, he had to build a little model of the city and destroy it. He had to walk around naked. He had to sleep on his side for X number. Every one of these things was a sort of a sign act. And it's a very important thing. It's one of two things, right, that the Lord gave us ongoing so that we could have ways physically of sharing with one another the inner spiritual reality of the miracle that has taken place and our redemption, and our rebirth, and our newness of life. So we have, we have baptism, and we have the Lord's Supper. And that's why, we, that's why we fully immerse in baptism. That's why in our tradition we don't sprinkle, we fully immerse, because it better represents the death, burial, and resurrection that we have participated in with Christ. See, there's so much packed into that 27th verse. So much packed into one verse. I have... Guinea pigs at home. And their bedding comes packed in this like vacuum tight stuff. And it says on the bag, expands to three times the size. Which is what goes on in anything Paul says. It's always so much more packed in. And you just, all you do is just just slice that plastic a little bit and the whole thing just blows open. That's what Paul does. He does it so well with that verse. But again, he's, he's, he's talking about this to a people that may or may not fully be aware of what that baptism meant, may or not have made those connections in their mind. And for us who very often only think of baptisms in terms of I'm going to see somebody get baptized, not being fully aware of the richness that's behind it. Next slide. We have in the 27th, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus and put on Christ, 27, I'm sorry, 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, there was among some Jews in the first century a Jewish benediction. And that benediction read, Blessed are thou, they didn't speak in the king's English, that was in Hebrew, Blessed are thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a foreigner. Blessed are thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, 
who has not made me a slave. Blessed art thou, O Lord of the universe, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has not made me a woman. So that's there. <laughs> so there's, there's that. Now, all of what I just said about the baptism is true whether you are a Jew or a Greek, slave or free, or male or female. That's what this passage is teaching. All those for whom all I just said is true are one in Christ Jesus. What makes us so has nothing to do with ethnicity, gender, or degree of personal freedom. The main point is that there is no such distinction that better qualifies one person for inclusion in the covenant community of Christ than any other person. And neither does circumstances either. Now, no doubt this verse has been molested by many, even in the Christian churches. Some say <clears throat> that this verse indicates that we eliminate all role distinctions in the church, especially the male-female distinction. And therefore, women can preach, and women can be elders and pastors, and can teach and have authority over men in the church. Wives, therefore, are no longer called to submit to their husbands. But let's take a few moments and just disabuse any such persons of those fraudulent notions by looking at some other texts. If we could have the first one, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3-5, through 5, we see here an equal role in the act of intimacy in marriage which uniquely images Christ and his people. Remember so often in Scripture we have this analogy, this parallel of you know Christ to the church, God to his people. It's always that of husband and wife. So there was, a, there was an intimacy, a sexual intimacy, uh, 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 uniquely in, in the marriage relationship. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except by agreement for a limited time that you may devote yourselves to prayer. But then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So again, through marital sexual intimacy, men and women have mutual shared authority over one another's bodies. Isn't that amazing? It's, a, it's such an interesting way of describing unity. There's so much in that. So, and, and his point being, when the marriage is healthy... When there is no physical, verbal, or emotional abuse, when the husband and wife are otherwise physically capable, if one spouse deprives the other of sexual intimacy, you can be assured there is a, a wounded man or woman as a result. Make no doubt about that. There is doubt in that other person's mind as to whether that spouse loves them or not. There is wondering, why would you deprive me of that? There is fantasizing going on. There was temptation by Satan happening. God requires be sexually intimate with your spouse, and a consequence of refusing to do so is an invitation for Satan to tempt your spouse with fornication and adultery and to destroy your marriage and leave it in a wake of wreckage. That doesn't excuse the person that commits adultery by any means, by the way. 
And you may not see that if it's in your relationship, and you may ignore it, and you may get angry at me for bringing it up, but it is Scripture. I am the Lord's under-shepherd, held to account by God for the flock he purchased with his own blood. And marriage being the picture of Christ in the church, that bears additional mention. Now, Scripture teaches complementarianism, which is men and women have complementary roles, which God uses and works together, and at some point we'll hear more about that. But let me say this, the marriage bed is, is as egalitarian as it gets. Egalitarian being, you know, total equality and there's no real distinction, etc., etc. So if you have a tendency towards egalitarianism, this is about as close as you're going to get in Scripture to that. Next one, please. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 to 25. As we continue to look at what is clearly distinction of the genders, of the sexes in Scripture. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to the husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Next one, First Timothy chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Next verse, Titus chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. And falling down the stairs at restaurants. They are, they are to teach what is good. They are to teach what is good. She wasn't. She wasn't. It's the idiots that, that were drunk on wine that didn't put lights in the hallway. <laughs> they are to teach what is good. And so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. And our last one, just for comparison, First Peter chapter 3, 7. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Showing honor to the woman as to the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Now, with all of these clear distinctions we have, these make no sense if there is no intended distinction, and if those distinctions are to be avoided by wrong application of this verse here. Understood? And I, most of these passages came after the Galatians passage. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So the importance of role distinctions for the body of Christ cannot be under, understated. You know, in the Old Testament temple, there are all kinds of great things, all kinds of silverware, all kinds of curtains and, and draperies and furniture and utensils and all kinds of things that made the temple a functioning temple where God's presence was to be known. Well, in the New Testament, we are the temple of God fully furnished with many of the things that are male and female that make up that holy temple to make it the place where Christ, where God can be made manifest to the church and to the world. So these, these are critical. And the timing for our study is good, isn't it? Because part of what we get out of this text today is a reminder of reality. It's the way things are. You need to remember that as a Christian, you're not just studying what Christians believe and other people believe other things, and that's okay. No, that's not okay. This is the way things are. We need to remember how God defines human gender 
and human being and to speak up when any person or group would use this text in support of their agenda. The world is attempting to reorient our thinking about gender and identity and in so doing it is pillaging from God, stealing from Him. And the culture today that constantly changes the meaning of terms to fit its agenda has succeeded in training the average undiscerning person to think in wrong ways. We use words to access and discuss objective reality. Words have meaning. When I say red poinsettia, I mean red poinsettia. Right? It doesn't mean something else. It is a word that we have and that we've all agreed on historically that somehow puts that on the color spectrum of wherever red belongs. Words mean something. Words can't just be tossed about and changed. But they are today. Examples. Global warming becomes global climate change. We're all concerned about global warming, but as soon as someone pushes back and says, well, the science says this or that, then, then it becomes global climate. Well, climate change happens all the time. So there's an equivocation on terms which traps people. Here's another one. Infrastructure to human infrastructure. There's a big difference between road and bridges and what a, a five-year-old needs to succeed in kindergarten. Heretofore, they've been separate and distinct. But we now live in a culture that wants to usurp, wants to take those words, equivocate on their meaning, because who's going to disagree with such a thing? From female to breastfeeding human. I didn't make that up. From female to childbearing human. From equality, which we all should want, to equity, which is not something that always has a proper place. Equity is not the same as equality. But when people begin to interchange and use those terms all the time, it's nothing unlike saying, yeah, that's a yellow poinsettia. Isn't it beautiful? What do you mean it's yellow? It's red. Well, yeah, that's what I mean. George Orwell in 1984 wrote, but if thoughts corrupt language, language can also corrupt thought. Power is in tearing human minds to pieces and putting them together again in new shapes of your own choosing. When words like gender are fluid and derive their meaning from the flawed logic and philosophies of the unbelieving world, the results are catastrophic. The demands that you use the pronouns a person decides for himself or herself, they demand that to be a just society, and we all want justice. If you don't want justice, there's no place for you in the kingdom of God, or there's a place, but you got to get some training. We should all intimate. God is so concerned about justice everywhere. But that doesn't mean you can take anything that you see wrong with society and call what you don't like about it injustice. They demand that to be a just society, you must acknowledge a characterization of reality that simply doesn't correspond to what is truly real. It's happening in the culture. It's happening in the church. You know, God built contrast and distinction into the creation. Night and day. Land and sea. Male and female. To say that gender is non-binary and that we should be free to assign our own gender which conflicts with DNA, genitalia, and other physiological realities is the ultimate act of anti-creation. It is like Satan's last stand. I don't know what much is left And their ideology really is another religion. 
And I'm not, I'm not bringing these things up because I just want to engage things. There are things in the temporary culture that are spoken to by texts of Scripture all the time. This is one of them. Because this verse has been corrupted. This verse has been lifted. This verse has been employed in service to which it does not belong. And people with these ideologies, really, they have a religion. They don't call it a religion. Nonetheless, it functions as much as any recognized religion in that it endorses a worldview, it proselytizes, and it threatens suffering for failure to submit. Christians are not immune to the potential to get sucked into that sense of, you're an unjust human. You are less than if you don't go along with how we are characterizing reality today. And really the same thing is happening with the Galatians except at the level of doctrine and theology and grace and peace. It happens everywhere. And that brings us to the final verse, which is, again is like verse 27. It's an identity verse. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. It follows logically from verse 27 and it reinforces the oneness of verse 28. Now, your translation may say seed rather than, than offspring. It's the same word. Recall from verses 16 to 17 here in the same chapter, Jesus is the seed. He is the offspring. Not many offsprings, one offspring. Jesus is the offspring of Adam. He's the one to whom all the promises are ultimately made. He's the one, as we see in Revelation, that is exalted and all the elders are surrounding the throne. That's all the promises made to Abraham fulfilled in Jesus. And verse 29 reminds us once again that as a result of our baptism into Christ, into his death, burial, and resurrection, there was an indissoluble union with him. We died. We were buried. We are raised with him. There's a one-to-one correspondence between the corporate body and Christ. Oh, get that. <laughs> no false gospel can trip you up if you get that. Nothing outside of Scripture will ever cause you to tremble or stumble when you get that fully. It's hard to see that. Oftentimes, we don't look a lot like Jesus. We do have his DNA, so to speak. We are heirs of the promises made to Abraham and to Christ. Paul says we are co-heirs. So all of that richness is far above and beyond anything the Mosaic Law could bestow. Right? The Mosaic Law couldn't give that to the Jewish people then. And more than any other worldview could promise or threaten us with now. The difference between the gospel and the Mosaic Law is the difference between supply and demand. (laughs) The gospel supplies that the law demands. The difference between the gospel and the cruelty of our culture and its so-called moral code is again supply and demand. Think of how the world treats the slightest infraction of wokeness law. Entire careers are ruined because of human sin that we all commit. And none of this is ever to dismiss or minimize. I'm going to stop saying that because if you don't already know it, then, right? I'm, I'm going to stop making pre-apologies for things that people ought to already know. It's because it satisfies some other nutcase somewhere. <laughs> something, something unintended, though careless is branded racist or sexist, which means change daily. (laughs) And that one person is counted guilty of committing all the racist or sexist acts ever committed in history. And that person must be erased. They must be canceled. There is no sacrifice that is enough. There is no grace to be given. 
what a dreadful term cancel culture is. It is dehumanizing. And the Jews were threatening these believers with cancel covenant for not being circumcised. Damn you to hell, Paul said. He said that back earlier in the letter. Damn them to hell. If they bring another gospel, a curse to they, anathema, damn them to hell for such things. Why? Because of everything that I already said which is true about Christ. How can, you, how can that which opposes it so vehemently receive anything else but such a curse? There has to be some correlation between the richness of Christ and that which defiles it. I offer you one final point of application for reflection. You know, every epistle Paul wrote to the early churches deals at some point with error, significant error that made its way into the early church. And in fact, it's often what precipitated the letter to those churches in the first place. So he he heard there was an error, something was going on, he had to address it. So Paul was constantly dogged and tormented by Judaizers, lewd fellows of the baser sort, angry pagans. His goal everywhere was to proclaim Christ and Him crucified. And here too in Galatia. Now, all of this happens, oddly enough, in the sovereignty of God. God allows apostates and false believers to infiltrate the church and pester His people. It's going on for 2,000 years. Dr. Carl Mosier is something of an expert in the history and era of the Mormon religion. And what makes it a heresy? He was one of my professors in the Christian Apologetics Master's Degree Program. And he said at one point something to the effect that heresy is like a wildfire that burns down portions of fields and forests. But the effect of that fire is typically a significant greening up of the field when it recovers. It's a beauty. There's a certain beauty regenerated in the forest after that happens. And in an article titled, in an article titled, The Lost Art of Growing Blueberries with Fire, the author de- details an agricultural process for growing blueberries on the coast of Maine, first used by the Passamaquoddy indigenous peoples of that area. Between summer harvest, they would set controlled fire to entire areas where blueberries had just been harvested. Now the author of this article interviewed one such farmer who still carries on the practice a gentleman with a degree in anthropology and religion who has been leasing and burning blueberry fields in that area for 25 years. And the farmer, Nicholas Lindholm, explains, quote, the 12 to 14 inch tall blueberry plant, a bush we see above ground, is only about one third of the actual plant. Underground is a network of rhizomes, storage houses of energy and food, which work alongside certain strains of fungus to extract what few nutrients subside in the gravely acidic main soil. There is this whole underground world we can't see. And burning everything above ground helps enrich the whole thing. He continues, We're harnessing that destructive force, the fire, the heat that destroys, to actually recreate new life, to reinvigorate, to bring forth better, healthier life, he says. And I suspect God is doing something like that in the early church with Paul and through all of history and today with all of the oddities that come up in church. 
God sovereignly allows all this stuff to happen. Of course, he's not taken by surprise. He's not kicking back saying, what's plan B now? How do I? God is not playing chess with humankind. Okay? God has already won. Checkmate. It's over. The deep things of God. The profundity of the gospel. The organic, sustaining promises of God, often hidden in the substrate of the Old Testament, yield their inherent doctrinal benefit when the fires of heresy and false gospel are lit in the harvest. Like that farmer, Paul and the apologist and theologian today are harnessing that destructive force. The fire, the heat that destroys to actually recreate new life, to reinvigorate, to bring forth better, healthier life. Slide. Some of you are hearing about, for the very first time, about the promises God made to Abraham. Some of you are familiar with Abraham, but the dots are being more connected now. Blanks are being filled in. You're becoming a more comprehensive, biblical theologian, and simultaneously, you have a more mature devotion to Christ. And that is the goal. That's the goal of all our instruction and teaching. Good faith or a pure conscience, pure heart. Now just this past week, the, el- <clears throat> the other elders and I received an email from a dear sister in our body. I didn't ask if I could share her name, so I won't. But she wants to study theology more scrupulously. And this is from her email. She says, this last semester we studied through Genesis 1-11 to using Jen Wilkins' study booklet. You ladies that have taken this know it. As we would prep for each week's meeting, we found ourselves coming across issues in her study material. Presumptions taught as fact. Missing major meta-narrative themes, etc. So you see, she started digging around in the Old Testament substrate and discovered rich theological nutrients there. She realized that to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, you need the correct meta-narrative established in Genesis and all the rest of the Old Testament scripture. Now, meta-narrative is just a big fancy word for the big picture, the big story. Okay, so what's the big story? And only then can the details take place. Right? So these Judaizers that want to use circumcision to enslave the people all over again could make a case for circumcision by going back to the law and showing it. But what they couldn't do, and what Paul had to show them to do, is no, bonehead, you got to go back further than the law. you got to go all the way back to Abraham. you got to go back to Genesis again. you got to go back to where it all began. you got to get the big picture first. And only then can you plug in those details. Don't plug in my details to your lousy story. Our mission as the church is to challenge and confront the false meta-narratives, whether they're in the church or the heretical organizations that call themselves Christians, or the pagan culture. Much as Paul is doing, armed with the gospel, willing to suffer for it, willing to be scorched and suffer some burns, metaphorically speaking. You know, many of our Christian forebears literally burned at the stake. The fields are still white for harvest. The Lord is going to allow the flames of heresy and false gospel and false worldview to spread. But it is a controlled fire with a holy purpose. We did not choose Jesus. He chose us and appointed us that we should go and bear fruit and that our fruit should abide so that whatever we ask the Father in His name, He may give it to us. God has promised this. Will you accept it? You think about that while we have some music playing for us.
Lord, we do ask that you bless this word, though.